Hi, my name is Nasrin Gozali, and I'm the Chief Risk Officer at Oasis, Asia-based multi-strategy hedge fund. For those who haven't the pleasure to meet Cathy Matsui or learn about her illustrious career, let me begin with Cathy's background. So Cathy is the former Vice Chair of Goldman Sachs Japan, the co-head of Macro Research in Asia, and the Chief Japan Equity Strategist. She was ranked number one in Japan Equity Strategy by Institutional Investor magazine multiple times. She was chosen by the Wall Street Journal newspaper as one of the 10 women to watch in Asia for her work on womenomics. And she was named to Bloomberg's magazine 50 Most Influential Lists. Cathy has served on numerous government committees at promoting gender diversity in Japan. It is my pleasure to have the chance to speak with her today. Cathy, let's get right into the questions. 22 years ago, you published a paper called Womenomics, which was later turned into a Japan official economic policy. Could you share what it is about and perhaps touch on Womenomics 5.0? Absolutely. And thank you for having me. First off, 22 years ago, Japan's economy was in a very rough position. After the peak of the asset bubble, uh, stock prices, property prices were collapsing. That led to banks being saddled with non-performing loans, which caused deflation in the economy. And at the same time, Japan was faced with massive demographic headwinds. And my position, my career as a Japanese equity strategist, of course, is to give advice to institutional investors about should they invest in Japan or not. And frankly, many of my overseas clients were saying to me, Kathy, what's the point? So that's my professional context. In my personal life, this was 1999, so I'd just given birth to my first child three years prior. I took the standard Goldman Sachs maternity leave of four months, went back to work full-time after that. But when I looked around, I noticed that a lot of my Japanese mommy friends had not returned to their careers in the same way that I had, particularly full-time. And it just dawned on me right then that perhaps one of the solutions to Japan's crisis at the time was to tap into half of its population. In other words, it was like Japan trying to run a marathon on one leg. So in 1999, I decided to look at some of the statistics more deeply At the time, Japan's female labor participation rate, i.e. the percentage of women who were working outside the home that could work, was in the mid-50 range, 55-56%, lowest in the developed world. Fast forward the clock, as of 2019, we've seen massive progress. Now Japan ranks among the highest in the developed world, 71%, pre-COVID, of course, in 2019, for that ratio which exceeds the similar ratios we see in both the U.S. and Europe, which are in the 60% range. So the good news is we've seen significant progress as the government has kind of latched on to womenomics, particularly with Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's uh, grasping of the womenomics agenda when he took power in 2013. In addition, another big area of progress we've seen is that the government, and this is frankly shocking to many of us who cover the world of gender diversity here, required 
Japanese companies to disclose gender-related statistics and set gender targets. So, for instance, setting a target for percentage of female managers by 2030, or whatever goals they decide to set. And there's, of course, this great phrase that says, "You cannot ma- manage what you don't measure." So if you don't know what your gender statistics are, you certainly can't, you know, reach more ambitious targets and goals. So to me, that was a huge step forward. Now, where Japan still lags, however, it's not all rosy. Where Japan still lags is the fact that Japan still suffers from a dearth, a lack of women in leadership positions, particularly in. The private sector, percentage of managers, percentage of board directors, as well as in the parliament, which is why Japan continues to rank very low on global gender surveys. But after 22 years, what I can say is the word diversity is now part of the Japanese vernacular. It was not the case 22 years ago. If you cared about, say, human rights or equality, yes, you used that term in your vocabulary. But if you didn't care, you know, it, it wasn't noticed. But now, because it's front and center for growth of the Japanese economy, i.e., diversity is imperative for economic and business growth. That's dramatically changed the conversation, which I'm very encouraged to see. Yes, that is、uh, fascinating. I am myself quite passionate about that, and、uh, my company too. We are a member of the Thirty Percent Club Japan chapter, and we are working on uh, our uh, responses to the Corporate Governance Revision Code, as well in Japan. We also work on that issue in, in Hong Kong. So we are really advocating for more female on boards, but. Let's go back to maybe the finance industry for the Women in、uh, Asia uh, Award uh, event today.、Uh, what are your thoughts on the state of women in finance, and what does it still need to go in terms of progress? Sure. So, frankly, similar to what I just described for the macroeconomy or society of Japan, I think we see in a bit of a more microcosm context. When it comes to women in global finance, as many of you at this、uh, event know, I think that over the last say ten to twenty years, at least during my thirty-year career in finance, I have seen a dramatic improvement of gender parity when it comes to women entering the financial services industry, say right out of school. Right, I think those numbers are are much more equal than they have been in the past. However, just like Japan overall, we still don't have enough women occupying leadership roles or positions in the top or in you know global financial institutions. Of course, we are all familiar with recent news that Jane Fraser took over the position of CEO of Citibank earlier this year, the first female CEO of a major U.S. bank, I believe, in 2019. Nat West Group in the UK had Alison Rose take over, but I believe out of roughly 79 US, UK, European major financial institutions, only six are headed by women, i.e., less than eight percent. So, while 
I think that 8% is higher than it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. In an absolute sense, it's still insufficient, inadequate. And to me, I entered the finance industry thinking, well, it's about numbers, isn't it? It's pretty easy to objectively, in, in, in a lot of, I think, the, the roles in the financial services industry, to quantify performance, to quantify output, which I think is not necessarily the case for many other sectors, right? Yet, why then do we still have you know, this situation which persists? And of course, as many of you know, I think it's a combination of many factors ranging from work flexibility to perhaps evaluation processes, promotion processes, hiring processes, um, a whole, you know, gamut of reasons. But if we think about growth sectors, you know, electric vehicles or, you know, e-commerce or whatever, I think it's safe to say that global finance is probably right up there in terms of high growth potential industries. So if that is true, and if, you know, at the end of the day, the number one critical input to whether a financial institution succeeds or doesn't succeed is what? Is it the strength of its computer infrastructure? How you know nice the buildings look that they're working in? No, it all comes down to one thing, and that is its human capital, right? And so if you cannot attract and retain the highest quality human capital, you're not going to compete and you're not going to survive. That's, you know, the end of the game. So to me, it's how do global financial institutions change perhaps the ways that they think about recruitment, retention, promotion, particularly of minority groups such as women, which I think are still a minority in the industry. And maybe rethink that question in the context where the whole global labor talent game has become much more competitive, right? We're not just competing with each other anymore. We're competing against internet companies, right? We're competing against e-commerce companies. So that question, I think, has to be re-addressed by the entire industry. Definitely. So how can an individual firm advance the cause of women in finance, I think? Well, I think there's a lot that can be done by individual organizations. I recently retired from Goldman Sachs, where I spent 26 years. We certainly did not crack the code necessarily on, you know, making, you know, our, our organization, our management, you know, at parity. However, I think we experimented. We learned a lot of lessons in terms of instituting uh, practices or, you know, schemes or programs that really were aimed at making or ensuring that the experience of women kind of through their whole, you know, career path was going to raise the probability that we would take the high potential, the women with the highest potential and groom them into eventual leaders of you know the, their businesses it's of course easier said than done i cannot say that everything we we did succeeded not at all but i think things like 
going beyond mentorship to incorporating very extensive sponsorship programs where essentially you are taking your highest potential female talent, assigning them sponsors who aren't just going to have coffee with you twice a year, but are going to sit down with you and strategize with you about what is the career roadmap ahead? What's it going to take to get you to that next level to be promoted to partner? Maybe the portfolio of your business is not big enough. Well, let's try to fix that. Is it different clients? Is it a different uh, job? Uh, is it a different jurisdiction? Right. Uh, and of course, with I think a lot of uh, people at this event, if your quote mothership is in a different continent, as it was with Goldman Sachs, and you're sitting in Asia, work on visibility. How do you become more visible with a home office? Right. What are things small and big that you can do? to improve your visibility. So there's a whole host of things around kind of what I call broadly sponsorship. And of course, unconscious bias training. I think everybody sort of does that, but it has to be repeated. It has to be reinforced. Of course, it's obvious that the uh, leadership must be totally and utterly committed to improving diversity. But if it just stops at leadership and it doesn't penetrate the you know, mid-management layers, it doesn't go very far. And also incorporating, for example, DNI metrics into evaluation tools, into into review, performance reviews, that kind of thing. So, again, what worked for Goldman doesn't necessarily work for everybody, obviously. But finding what works for your organization, and I think we we also, I would say learned a lot of lessons, at least in Japan, about, well, for example, a lot of organizations of women networks, which are great. But when you mm -hmm. limit your women network membership and activities just to women, when you're a minority within a big organization run by men, it's hard to move that needle, right? So we, it, we figured out, well, wait a minute, let's get some senior male sponsors to sponsor some of the activities of that network, get them on the panels of the events that we're hosting, get them the championing various initiatives. And then we start to see that needle move in ways that we didn't see prior. So lots of experimentation, but again, it's a marathon, not a sprint, but really trying to ensure that the organization from the top to the bottom are truly committed to this because it helps performance, not because it's the right, you know, right thing to do or it's equality or whatever, because this is a competitive and strategic imperative, that's what's going to make this work. Yes, not because it's the right thing to do, but it is the good thing to do. Totally agree here. You, you described very well what can be done in terms of organization. How can an individual person advance the cause of women in finance? Everybody can do their part. And clearly in an industry where the leadership is dominated by more men than women, I think a lot can be done by everybody, including the, the men at the top. And so engaging the senior leaders, wh whatever gender they are, to the importance of, again, I go back to that root point, the basic point, which is how are you going to compete? How are you going to win with the talent that you have today? You know, in Japan, I often come across a lot of organizations, big companies here, their management went to school together, you know, 
have the same hobbies, read the same books, watch the same TV shows. If the business is flying like a rocket ship, that talent pool is probably perfectly fine, right? Because they know each other and it's so comfortable. But if it's not a rocket ship, but that business is starting to plateau, or God forbid is declining, and you're thinking the same way that you were doing five years ago, 10 years ago, and repeating the same routines, obviously nothing's going to change and your business is going to continue to decline. So thinking about, so how do you present say, a diversity plan in an organization? Well, first of all, you're probably not the only person in the organization who feels that, this way, right? And it's not just about diversity, is it, right? Or, sorry, it's not just about gender diversity. To me, it's diverse, uh, it's cognitive diversity, which I like to call it, right? People from different schools, right? I think finance tends to be quite elitist, frankly, right? Are you recruiting from diverse populations? If you're not, why not? Right? And so trying to figure out what is the right mix of diverse talent that you need, but having open conversations with people, your peers, and maybe presenting some proposals, because uh, over the years, and I think many of you will attest, it's easy to complain, right? And management doesn't want to just hear complaints. They want to hear the complaint, the problem, and the solution or potential solution. So be constructive when you complain, right? So this is the situation. We're losing female talent or whatever it is. This is how we propose to fix it, right? Look at best practices globally. Look at practices of your competitors. What are they doing that you're not doing, right? So I think there's a, a ton of things that we can do as individuals, but it's hard to fight a battle alone. So yeah. getting like-minded people and absolutely engage the men, your male colleagues, is is super crucial in my view. Great. Thank you so much for, for, for this wisdom. Cathy, can I ask you, what are your goals for the future? My goals for the future. So now that I am retired from Goldman Sachs, my goal is to start something on my own. My parents are both entrepreneurs. They're actually farmers, uh, immigrated from Japan to the United States. I've always dreamed of doing something on my own. So I can't reveal it right now, but it will be a combination of my financial background and my passion for today's topic of gender diversity. I've also done a lot of research around corporate governance. Sustainability is another passion. So combining all those things is what's in my future. But at the end of the day, going back to, I think, your original questions surrounding, you know, how do we get more women in finance? I think we've got plenty of women in finance. It's how do we get more women at the top uh, of those institutions? And it's not about how big your offices are, how many computers you have. It's a whole new world of fintech and, and, and so many creative and innovative models for finance going forward that I think women with their specific talents and skills, they have so much to bring and so much to add to creating new innovative growth strategies in this industry. So I'm super excited about what lies ahead. Great. Thank you so much for all your advice and your responses. And I'm sure the audience and myself are willing to see what will be your next endeavor. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you for having me.